This is indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed and for Dr. Rashad Ritchie today and joining us, this is the first time we're together, I think, Dr. Jonathan Metzel. I gotta read it off the paper because there's so many things that you have going on <laughs> proving that indeed you are a real doctor. You're the director for the Department of Medicine, Health, Society, Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University. I don't want to be diagnosed, Dr. Metzel. No okay. problem, you're safe. Privately, <laughs> you can send me a message privately. You're also <laughs> uh, the author of the book, Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing Americas. Uh, listen, I look forward to reading the book. I look forward to your commentary, but just the subject matter and your expertise um, are gonna carry the day. They're gonna carry the show, I think. And let's begin with Elon Musk. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about Elon Musk. He wants someone fairly normal, the billionaire says, for president. We can unpack that statement alone, but I'll give you some supporting documentation. On Tuesday, the tech billionaire, Elon Musk, said he wants someone fairly normal for president as the 2024 election draws closer. However, he didn't explicitly make an endorsement. Now this comes just one day after it was revealed that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis would be launching his presidential campaign in a live and unscripted interview on Twitter with Musk. It will happen later today. Although the Twitter CEO has previously said he would vote for DeSantis should he run, he has recently been hedging his bets. Showing support for Republican South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who announced his campaign for the presidency just earlier this week. You had to see that one live, by the way, but that's just me. Um, wow. Meantime, as DeSantis gears up for his anticipated Twitter appearance today, it's also been revealed that his flagship law enforcement relocation program has been raising red flags of its own. Numerous police officers lured to new jobs in Florida with cash from Governor Ron DeSantis' flagship law enforcement relocation program have histories of excessive violence or have been arrested for crimes including kidnapping and murder since signing up. A study of state documents has found DeSantis has spent more than $13.5 million to date on that recruitment bonus program, which he touted in 2021 as an incentive to officers in other states frustrated by COVID-19 vaccination mandates. Quoting, this will go a long way to ensuring we can have the best and the brightest filling our law enforcement ranks. Florida's Republican Attorney General Ashley Moody said in April last year, as DeSantis announced one time $5,000 bonuses for new recruits. However, among the most 600 Officers who moved to Florida and received that bonus or were recruited in state. They are a sizable number who either arrived with a range of complaints against them or have since accrued criminal charges. That from the online media outlet Daily Dot. Here are just a few examples of the kind of officers this program has apparently lured to the Sunshine State. They include a former trainee deputy. With the Escambia County Sheriff's Office charged with murdering her husband. Best and the brightest. An officer with the Miramar Police Department fired for domestic battery and kidnapping. And a former member of the New York Police Department 
who was hired by the Palm Beach Police Department, having once been accused of an improper sexual proposition, the best and the brightest. He said he was gonna get them in Florida. There's more, that officer named by the Daily Dot as Daniel Meblin was also part of a $160,000 settlement by the NYPD for violence at a 2020 protest against the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd in which officers were accused of beating black males without provocation. A lot of programs are out there, doctor, luring great workers, offering bonuses, other incentives just to get them to the desired department. Unpack what Ron DeSantis has done here and let's talk about who's among the ranks in Florida law enforcement. Well, I think there are three Three important, I mean, obviously there's so much going on in, in, in what you just read and the news that it surrounds. I think there are three important points that we might wanna think about. And of course, the irony surrounding all of this is that this is all happening on pretty much the same week that um, the NAACP and other organizations are actually issuing travel advisories, telling people and, and particularly uh, people of color to think twice about even visiting Florida because of the hostile environment that's happening. And I think the three the three context points, number one is of course DeSantis, this DeSantis um, presidential pending presidential campaign, um, which is part of that news story. And DeSantis is basically telling people that he's going to make America what he's doing in Florida. And that's probably attractive for people like Elon Musk, who have a very libertarian view of basically a lot of smokescreen about authoritarian, anti-woke, anti-blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, just basically making for them a very pro-business community that is not paying for anything that government or uh, you know, society should do. So cutting away all the taxes, all the social programs, all these factors. And so number one is just a question for America. Do we want that model for America? Um, number two, of course, is that when you do do that, which is you cut away things and stop paying for things, you do uh, what you see in Florida, which is uh, a militarization of the police. I think that's a, a pretty good example of it right there. But we're also seeing that in classrooms, for example, in Florida. You might remember that DeSantis um, is hiring military veterans and their spouses with really no teacher training whatsoever to teach middle school and high school in Florida. And so they're militarizing classrooms. So that's point number two is, is that what we want? And then I guess point number three would just be about the relationship between Twitter, which we can talk about. What's, what does Musk get out of attracting the Tucker Carlson's of the world and now the Ron DeSantis's of the world? Is that the business model for Twitter? Are they stealing a megaphone um, and, and a platform from liberals? What do liberals do from there? So the kind of social media implications of what this means for social media. Yeah, you, you've said a lot. I agree with, uh, well, all of it. When you talk about the NAACP doctor and uh, a lot of people thought, well, this is just semantics. They're just making a, a statement here. It's more political than it is about race, but it's it's not true. Because some would argue that if there was a national registry too, okay, going back to the recruitment of these officers, this could avoid things. I would suggest that it wouldn't, it would just help Ron DeSantis recruit directly, yes? Because he wants this kind of officer with what you and I may agree is a troubled past. But he would say, 
right on. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's right. I, I think that when you're creating the kind of society that he seems to be creating in Florida, um, you want people who have <laughs> have these particular kind of tendencies. And so um, it's just, again, we're three years, two or three years after a national debate about excessive policing and what that means for civil society, for American um, um, democracy, for equal opportunities for America. And DeSantis is modeling a very different notion of America, which has people with these kind of tendencies in authority positions. Um, I think we all know from history how that how that turns out, which is it's a move toward cementing a kind of centralized authority that doesn't really turn out well for for countries. And so I think we need to keep being aware of these these kind of stories. Again, I, I think it's it's as alarming as what they're doing in schools in Florida also. And then think, is that the country that we want as he launches a national campaign? Your credentials are just spot on. We're gonna move on, but I just have to ask you this because it's kind of a prediction. I don't know what we're gonna see when these gentlemen get together on Twitter or here, I guess it's audio. But Elon Musk is awkward, okay? We can argue about why. And so is Ron DeSantis, socially inept and awkward as well. And we all know about the pudding. And that whole thing. And so when these two people get together, doctor, based on your expertise, what what social cues might we hear <laughs> between them? I, you know, I, I'm curious to see the conversation. I mean, I'm certainly going to tune in. That that's probably what Elon Musk is is betting on. Um, I think you, I think you've hit the nail on the head, which is what what is being conveyed. It's not charm. It's not allure. It's not even. Dare I say what you know? Trump, for all of his craziness and problematic stuff, is, is is charismatic in a way. But here are two guys who are projecting, you know, power, the desire desire for power, a particular kind of white masculinity that is about authoritarianism as opposed to swaying people or charming people. So again, I, I think the interesting thing will be how how America how America responds um, given. Our leaders have generally not always been charismatic. And so is people's desire for power going to be greater than their desire to have somebody who speaks to them personally? Well, I may tune in too. So perhaps you're right, doctor. We must give Elon a little bit of credit, just a little bit. And then we'll take it from there. I'd love to get a follow up from you about what you were able to glean from that using your expertise, of course. A Nazi admirer crashing near the White House with a U-Haul. What was going on here? We do have more information on it. The man using a U-Haul truck tried to attack the White House. Let's give you the reporting from NBC News. This morning, new details surrounding the 19-year-old suspect who police say intentionally crashed a U-Haul truck into barriers just a few hundred feet from the White House Monday night. Sai Varshith Kandula of Chesterfield, Missouri, has been federally charged with depredation of U.S. property. Secret Service and Park Police listing additional charges related to his arrest, including threatening to kill, kidnap, or inflict harm on a president, vice president, or a family member. 
as well as assault with a dangerous weapon, reckless driving, destruction of federal property, and trespassing. The charging documents saying the driver embraced Nazi ideology, detailing that Kandula had removed a Nazi flag from the truck after the crash, telling agents he bought the flag online, and saying, quote, Nazis have a great history, and describing Hitler as a, quote, strong leader. I heard this loud bang, and it was, I looked behind, and there was this huge U-Haul truck just out of nowhere. According to the criminal complaint, Kandula told Secret Service agents his intent was to, quote, kill the president and hurt anyone that would stand in his way. Describing his goal was to, quote, get to the White House, seize power, and be put in charge of the nation. President Biden was in the White House at the time of the incident. So it's just a, a lot more information from NBC News there. And I guess, Doctor, I want to start with you and give me your initial impression of what we have learned here, because this appears to be a very dangerous and dogged suspect. Well, you know, I think really the main message for me is that these messages of violence and and threat that are in the air everywhere these days are 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 per, people who are mentally not well or prone to violence are particularly susceptible to them. I know there was a lot on social media about how can this guy be a white supremacist if he's not, you know, clearly not white. And I think that's really the wrong message. I think the message is extremist messages are picked up and acted on by people who are the most prone to acting in these kind of violent ways. We've seen this in multiple examples, the guy who attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband, and now this case, multiple others. And so people who are prone to violence and have means and get this kind of tacit approval by society act in this way. It doesn't matter what their background is. Um, This is also somebody who I think I read he had been planning it for six months and and with no disrespect, then he just drove a U-Haul into the wall. And so I think that in a way it probably suggests that maybe his organizational or planning capacities, I don't know anything about him, but um, this is probably somebody not completely playing with a full deck. And and so this idea of basically somebody probably imbalanced or, you know, again, I don't know anything about him, but I would just say suggest somebody, um, somebody who's not mentally well. And again, those are people who given the means, the access, not just to trucks, but to firearms uh, and other things that are so easy in our society right now and overturning background checks and all the checks and balances we've had. I think that there's there's a lot of danger of this kind of extremist violence. And so thankfully, this one seems to have turned out okay. But it is, I think, a red flag for, for our society. Yeah, because it seems like some of the rhetoric, uh, the most dangerous rhetoric is a call to action to people who perhaps have the makeup of, of this person. We will give you more background. Sal Varshith Candela of Chesterfield, Missouri, rented the U-Haul truck immediately after flying from St. Louis to Dulles International Airport on a one-way ticket, red flag, that from a Secret Service agent. The statement included with a criminal complaint, charging Candula with depredation property of the United States in excess of $1,000. Now, people who know the suspect. Pranav Nagila, who was a year ahead of Kandula, said he couldn't make sense of his one-time schoolmate possibly having a Nazi flag in his possession. I didn't see him as off-putting or anything like that, said Nagila. 
who just finished his sophomore year at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He just seemed like a chill person. And the reporting from NBC News. Kandula appeared in Washington DC Superior Court on Tuesday and is expected to make an initial appearance in federal court this afternoon. He wasn't immediately clear, was not, if Kandula has a lawyer to speak on his behalf. What's troubling, doctor, is some who, if not most, who produce and push and buy in to this rhetoric about the president, about others, about marginalized groups. They don't believe it. They now have evidence that it sucks some unstable people in, but yet they continue to engage in it so much so that it seems like this can be in some way, and primitive, I don't have your degrees, it can be viewed as a public health crisis. Am I wrong? Is that too much? You know, this story reminds me of a couple others we've heard. I mean, the one that comes to mind actually was one that happened in Nashville, the, the Waffle House mass shooting um, in Nashville, where the shooter about six months before he committed a mass, the mass shooting um, was arrested trying to trespass on, on, on the White House grounds also. Um, and it turned out when they started doing the, the background checks on this guy, um, you know, there were a long history of not just this, but you know, buying AR-15s and and weapons and other kinds of threats, and so it really was a red a red flag, and the White House was a particular draw for for this guy, and six months later he kept escalating and he he committed a, a mass shooting, and so there's something about these kind of attacks on public places or these fantasies of saving the world. Um, that that tie into people who meet this profile. Now there are two things I think that are very, very important. First of all, of course, is this guy who just drove into the White House. You know, that's kind of the age sometimes, 18, 19, 20 through 25, where you see the first break of some kind of mental illnesses. Again, I don't know if that's the case, but most of my research actually argues against stereotyping people with mental illness because the whole world has people who suffer from mental illness, but they don't have the kind of mass shootings or this kind of violence that we do. And so the, the issue is, as you suggest, it's not just about the person's psychology. Um, it's also that there there is ample means. I mean, driving a truck is is a lot better than having an AR-15 and killing people, but there's just so much lethal means in our country um, that we, when we overturn the checks and balances, this is the risk we run. Well, it certainly is disturbing. It appears that we're seeing more and more and more of these kinds of uh, attacks, uh, the worst avoided in most instances, but not all. And it's very disturbing because you wonder what can be done about it. And you're right to just pin this on people who have a predisposition or may have a mental issue or diagnosis is not going to get it done. It's certainly not gonna solve this thing, um, but I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I mean, it, there's no mystery, right? But there are checks and balances that societies do. Um, and and the I'm part of the gun safety movement, we've proposed Red flag laws on gun gun ownership or background checks, uh, other factors like that. 
Um, other societies also invest quite a bit more in mental health services than we do. Um, again, not knowing anything about this person's history, but I would just say structurally, there are so many things we could be doing as a society that would see instances like this as as warning signs and and act accordingly. And we're not doing that right now. Doing a terrible job. Uh, collectively, individually, whatever, um, not getting it done. But we'll move on, doctor. I am old enough that I like who I like. And if I don't like someone, I just don't like them, okay? She, E. Jean Carroll, would normally be someone I would say, I, I don't necessarily wanna be friends with someone who just won't let it go. They go on and on and on. Dog with a bone, won't drop it. But in this case, I love her. I love her because she won't shut up about it. And here she is again, Eugene Carroll suing Trump again over those CNN comments. I think his lawyer probably behind his back said, that was dumb. We warned you not to do this. After Trump was found liable earlier this month, I believe it was on the same day. For defamation and sexual abuse to Eugene Carroll, which a jury ordered him to pay $5 million in damages. Carroll asked a court to amend her initial case to seek additional damages after he repeated his denials during that CNN town hall. Days later, days later. Here's a reminder of some of the things Trump said during the town hall. Listen. This woman, I don't know her, I never met her, I have no idea who she is. I had a picture taken years ago with her and her husband, nice guy, John Johnson. He was a newscaster, very nice man. She called him an ape, happens to be African-American, called him an ape. The judge wouldn't allow us to put that in. Her dog or her cat was named Vagina. The judge wasn't allowed to put that in. All of these things, he would, but with her, they could put in anything. Access this Hollywood. This was a jury of nine people who found right. you liable of sexual abuse. Do you think that, that that will deter women from voting for you? No, I don't think so, because I think the whole thing, just so you understand, ready? I never met this woman. I never saw this woman. This woman said, I met her at the front door of Bergdorf Goodman, which I rarely go into other than for a couple of charities. I met her in the front door. She was about 60 years old, and this is like 22, 23 years ago. I met her in the front door of Bergdorf Goodman. I was immediately attracted to her, and she was immediately attracted to me. And we had this great chemistry. We're walking into a crowded department store. We had this great chemistry, and a few minutes later, we end up in a, a room, a dressing room of Bergdorf Goodman, right near the cash register. And then she found out there were locks on the door, so she said, I found one that was open. She found one. She learned this at trial. She found one that was open. What kind of a woman meets somebody and brings them up, and within minutes, you're playing hanky-panky in a dressing room, okay? <laughs> I don't know if she was married then or not. John Johnson, I feel sorry for you, John Mr. Johnson. President. That was a lot. And I want to get the doctors, uh, he's not treated the former president, but I'm sure he has something to say. But first, I want to give you more about Donald Trump and how he responded to this new development on Truth Social. I don't know E. Jean Carroll, I never met her or touched her except on a celebrity line with her African-American husband, who she disgustingly called the ape, Trump posted. 
I wouldn't want to know or touch her. I never abused her or raped her or took her to a dressing room 25 years ago in a crowded department store where the doors are locked. She has no idea when or did anything else to her except deny her fake made up story that she wrote in a book. It never happened is a total scam unfair trial. He continued on his rant online saying this. The Carroll case is part of the Democrats playbook to tarnish my name and person much like the now fully debunked Russia, Russia, Russia hoax. 51 intelligence agents, FBI, Twitter files and so much more Trump posted. It is being funded and tried by Democrat operatives, although this was denied by them. When they got caught in the lie, the Clinton appointed judge would not let us use it in trial. Time will prove him to be a highly partisan and very unfair. Where's the dress she said she had? And there's more info on the suit. Carol's new lawsuit contends that Trump's comments show the depth of his malice toward Carol, since it is hard to imagine defamatory conduct that could possibly be more motivated by hatred, ill will, or spite. Trump's lawyer filed a notice of appeal after losing the trial. A legal battle, if anyone needs a reminder, stems from an incident at a Bergdorf Goodman's department store in the mid 1990s, in which Carol claimed Trump forced himself on her in a dressing room. A jury agreed. So doctor, several things stand out to me when Donald Trump goes on his rants that I need insight from you about the gaslighting, the deflecting, talking about what the woman supposedly did. Much of it not true, much of it unproven, yet he repeats it over and over again, even all caps or shouting. And I wonder what you make of that, because I may know other people who behave in this manner. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, from a professional perspective, I never talk diagnostically about people I haven't encountered personally. Um, but I would say that the audacity of what we've just seen is a, is a strategy from a political perspective. That um, it's just ironic that on the in the very same set of days, where there was a trial and jump and Trump was found liable of exactly what he was doing, exactly what he was doing. He then doubled down and repeated the exact same thing that he was convicted of. Uh, as, as you say, a, a jury heard the case. Trump had a chance to make the argument in the trial that he made on television, on True Social, and then has been repeated everywhere, including we just we just did it here. And so why would he do that? Why would he double down on the thing that he was just literally found <laughs> found guilty of? Um, and, and what kind of work does that do? Uh, it seems like he of course gets a lot of mileage out of suggesting that he's a victim of the system. He's got a history of playing to a kind of misogyny trope that he's a victim of women who just want his stuff. Um, and. Uh, and I guess just the subversion of the system is something that I guess he's calculating appeals to people uh, who who support him. And so again, it's just a question of what kind of society are we? Do we want to be the kind of society where these kind of matters are litigated in a, in a court by a jury? Or are we gonna be this kind of society where these matters are litigated on CNN and then replayed again and again, and then let, let him speak this? And so, 
there's really a important question of kind of gender and politics and power that are that are happening here. I know that Carol has now refiled, I think, a suit because again, Trump just it literally did the thing that he was just convicted of. So it'll be important to to see this play out. But for me, the most disturbing part, I mean, Trump's pretty predictable by this point. Um, but the audience laughing about it, I, I just find really, really troubling because it just it just has such horrible implications for kind of kind of what this means. Yeah, and and I want to you know dial in on that when you talk about the audience and and the greater audience at home who perhaps um, there well certainly there were some at home who were also laughing and cheering and I wonder what that rooting um, that leaving what would be for most people normal sensibilities um, behind just to pick a side does to us as a greater society because I felt trauma. And I mean, think of everything Trump did even in the clip we just heard. I mean, it's incredible, but in a two minute clip, he worked in sexism, um, justification for uh, sexual violence. He worked in racism, uh, misogyny. Um, and so there was an awful lot going going on there. Um, you know, I, I think I've interviewed a lot of Trump supporters and for them, the allure of Trump from the beginning was this guy who was flouting every standard and just putting it all out there and saying what people think or not bucking the system. And so it plays into Trump's stick, which seems to be getting worse, right? This is more extreme. And so again, I think the question for us as a country is is that the kind of person you want running the whole country again? I really think that it's not just any person who's doing this right now. It's somebody who has a not nothing chance of being the next president. And so, I, I really do think that um, that that's the question: is do, do you want this person with the keys to the castle and the nuclear codes um, again? And and I think there's some real hard questions there. Yeah, because I think a lot of people perhaps don't realize that this is just one night on CNN, but we're going to be in store for a lot more as things gear up in the primary. Republican side for now, just they'll be duking it out and then the general election. Interesting stuff, much more indisputable when we come right back. Welcome back to Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie, who has the day off. We are getting most heartbreaking news. It's heartbreaking news. Tina Turner, the rock legend, one of a kind, the dance moves, those legs. Tina Turner has passed away. She's one of rock's greatest vocalists, most charismatic performers, of course, that signature style. She was 83. Her spokesperson is confirming the news that Tina Turner has died. Here's the statement. Tina Turner, the queen of rock and roll has died peacefully today at the age of 83 after a long illness in her home near Zurich, Switzerland. With her, the world loses a music legend and a role model. She was born Tina Turner, one of the best Love female rock singers known for her onstage presence, a string of hits, including the best Proud Mary, Private Dancer, What's Love Got to Do With It? She was first famous alongside her ex-husband Ike Turner, classic song River Deep, 
Mountain High among their hits. She talked a lot about domestic abuse at the hands of Ike. That was documented in a 1993 Hollywood biopic starring Angela Bassett, which won three Oscars. Tina Turner passing away today. And Dr. Metzl, I want to bring you in because I loved her. So many people loved her, different walks of life throughout the world, race, gender. It's it's like she had an anthem for everyone. It's it's really shocking because she just feels like somebody who would live forever, honestly. Yeah. Um, and just and just that power and that energy and and will live forever in terms of that power and energy. I can just say that, I mean, I was a white kid growing up in Kansas City, Missouri uh, and talk about range. Um, she touched me and and everybody I knew and and all of these incredible iconic performances and 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 songs as I can Tina, but particularly after I mean, I remember being a kid like in middle school and seeing the movie Tommy um, with all of these, I mean, Elton John and The Who and all these incredible performers are in this movie. She steals the entire show with her energy. And and that was true for pretty much everything. So that just that, that range and remember this was the era before social media. And so for somebody to dominate such a powerful segment and reach so many people. It really is such a huge loss. And I think hopefully this will be an opportunity for us to go back and watch some of those iconic performances. I'm gonna do it. And I think people will start downloading whatever they can get their hands on. There's something else about her, two two things really that I noted. Never met her, don't know, perhaps it's unfounded these next comments, but I found her to be Still loving and not bitter in, in what I saw from interviews and her life story. And I also found her to be brave. And I think that's a takeaway, brave in her music, brave in what she presented and talked about in the time where it wasn't a proud moment to discuss one's history, public history of that. A star, a true star with so much talent. And yet she gave so much and talked so openly about the pain, the trauma, domestic violence, doctor. Yeah, and also just such a brave artist. I mean, you know, in in this current day, people are pegged as being in a particular genre, and she was like a true genre buster. I mean, imagine being a somebody who was associated with soul or R and B or um, other kinds of things, and then doing the song to like. Mad Max Thunderdome, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's just—it's amazing how many. It just—it just speaks to and kind of intellectual bravery on her part, just willing to try so many different modes of expression and then change the course of of those modes also. And so I just think, you know, we're not going to see somebody like this for for a mm-hmm. long time. No, you're so right. She said, "You're not going to pin me down." Even her signature hairstyle um, and her dance moves—it just—it just was so. Such a beautiful thing, and it kind of made us free watching her perform. Um, it's that thing where it goes beyond the music, it just moves you internally. Tina Turner, gone at the age of 83. Let's get you some viewer comments on block one of Indisputable. TYT member Winter Scoop says this about Elon Musk saying that he just wants someone fairly normal for president. 
Twitter scoop says, what the hell can anyone mean by quote normal? Elon Musk's version of normal is scary. <laughs> Nadius Maximus says this about Ron DeSantis, who will announce for the presidency he'll run later today with Elon. And about the rest, recruiting officers from other states, the best and the brightest. But we've learned that may not be who's coming to Florida. Nadia says, Ron DeSantis makes me truly disgusted to live in Florida. YouTube member G Martinez Mac, also about the Elon Musk comment about someone fairly normal. So he's recruiting bullies like himself and recruiting hostile officers to reflect his personality. Great, speaking of Ron DeSantis. About the Nazi admirer who crashed near the White House with that U-Haul. Night Eater says, once he totaled the U-Haul, how would he make it across the lawn? Asking perhaps a well, too realistic of a question here. But it's a good one nonetheless. Now, I wish a Karen would. You wanna call the police on him for having a barbecue on a and Sunday? I'm going to tell them there's an African American man threatening my life. Do it. All right, sir, so this man does not have a work order. We are here for. No. We're here for this woman. So there's nothing we can do for her. There's nothing we can do for her. All right, well, until the work order gets put on my tech, he's not. No, doing. there's not going to be a work order for there me. Will be. No, there's not. We don't do stuff for free, ma'am. Screw don't do you, okay? Free. You can no. I, I, well, we yep. keep going. Here you go. No. Here you go. All right, Chad, until we have a work order, we don't do stuff for free. We will not be helping this customer. There Chad. You go. Fix my Wi Fi now. You're not going to get a work order. You're gonna fix my Wi-Fi now. Dr. Metzel, it seems there's no way to diffuse situations with Karens like this. And understandably, we've seen it get much worse than this. This one could have gotten out of hand with a different Karen on a different day. But what we see is enough that it rises to the level of intimidation, a crisis, fear in those who oppose them. Well, indisputable has set a very high bar for the Karen segment. Um, I agree with you. I, you know, uh, this is a this is like a kind of under the radar kind of uh, sure. kind of video. Um, there's an awful lot going on there. Who knows what that story is? Who knows what this person's history is? What the what what's going on with them? Um, I noticed she called Chad at the end there. So hopefully Chad was able to just diffuse <laughs> this particular system, um, a situation. Um, but but again, there was I agree with you a level of entitlement of I'm not I'm not paying for it. You just kind of give me the service service right now. So it'll be curious if there's any backstory on what was exactly exactly happening there. But I do know it's hard to get people to do work without a work order, having tried to get my own cable fixed many, <laughs> many times. Uh, so <laughs> hopefully, I'll, if, if Chad's out there, maybe he could help me also next time. Yeah, you know, and 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 here's the thing: when it comes to technology, to those of us who are not technically savvy, it it seems to heighten things 
and myself with others. The emotion when you are so frustrated because you can't get online, you can't get work done, things keep freezing up. It's a lot, doctor. Can we say, and again, we don't know who this Karen is, we don't know more to fill out the details behind the scenes, but can that be a mitigating factor to some of this behavior? Well, certainly if we live online, the frustration of not having access to that, I think a a lot of people would act out in those circumstances. But I think again, and the other frustration is just try calling the cable company and getting uh, one of these appointments. You know? so yeah. I just think there's something very human about the about the clip today. I, I don't want to I don't want to you know reward bad behavior. Clearly, this person was acting inappropriately, but but there is something that taps into a, a much more kind of human sense of frustration with this one. I would say compared yeah. to others I've seen here. <laughs> You're not making an excuse for this, Karen, doctor, but perhaps <laughs> we've all been there when it comes yeah. to Wi-Fi technical. Issues much more indisputable when we come right back. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie. Dr. Jonathan Metzel is our special co host today. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie, our co host today, the extraordinary Dr. Jonathan Metzel, who we just, um, we love, love your expertise. Doctor, tell us the name of your book again. I think I. I botched it at the top of the show. That's okay. My book is called Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Um, It's been out uh, in hardcover and paperback. We're actually getting a version 2.0 coming out in in February of next year. And I also have another book coming out about mass shootings and race in America that's coming out in January. So lots, lots of stuff going on on my end. Yeah, and uh, you know, I know it references the heartland, dying of whiteness. But if you could do a special edition for Florida, and we could secretly slip that under some doors down there, that would be welcome, Dr. Metzel. That would yeah. be welcome. That'd be uh, let's, <laughs> right. Um, quick comments. Uh, Tina Turner, TYT member, Frugal Dragons has rest in peace and power. Tina Turner, we brought you the news, gone at the age of 83, an original. We, I don't even want to say gone. Dr. Metzl's right. Um, she lives on forever and will have her work forever. This next story, uh, I wasn't good at geography. Perhaps some of you are challenged. A Hertz worker and a cop argue almost to the end, saying Puerto Rico is not part of the United States. Listen. I've been tra- I'm, I've been renting with Hertz for like I don't care. Hours, if but but just that. just to give you all the context, for more for over a decade I've been renting with Hertz. I don't care. I have never been denied because I'm a resident of Puerto Rico. I live in Puerto Rico. I'm a retired federal law enforcement officer, which you can only be a federal law enforcement officer if you're a United States citizen. So by virtue of that, I'm explaining that to them. I don't have my passport because I don't need to travel with my passport. When I'm in the United States, what's the issue with their policies and you? I don't. I need to get to my son who's waiting for me, so I want to process. I have a prepaid reservation already paid for. It's not that I'm. It's not that I'm making a new reservation. It's being paid for three uh, weeks. Okay, if you're claiming that you're a federal officer, then maybe you can understand the words that are coming out of my mouth a little bit more clear for the third time. If they say you need a passport, and you don't have one, and they say you need a passport to rent a car. What is your problem? No, no, but you said that you are from out of state. Out of 
you need to show that that's not out of country, that's the U.S. Because you recorded us, now you're not going to be able to bring the person ever. Because you shouldn't have recorded us I recorded what was being said to me, man. Alright, we're gonna go. We're not gonna keep going in circles here. It is midnight. This is ridiculous, and I'm saying that ridiculous. We're not gonna do this crap anymore. Is that pretty okay. clear? Okay. All right. So you can find your way out the parking garage or second or third floor and try to rent a car. We are not gonna sit here for any longer and bicker over this nonsense. If you not get so a car, what you don't about, have a passport. What about that I prepaid? I prepaid. Okay. I They've got this thing called the corporate office. You can send all your videos that you recorded to them and try to get your money back. We are not gonna sit here tonight You're and do this anymore. Uh, you done? You can leave. All right. Which way do I go to? Uh... Right past that car down the escalator, down the stairs. Can I go down there to that way? I don't care which way you go. Thank you. That's customer service for you. At that Hertz counter. Let's give you the details. Incident occurred at Louis Armstrong International Airport in New Orleans. The man in the video has been identified as Huberto Marchand, clinical psychologist specializing in mental health who worked in law enforcement for 25 years, serving as deputy chief. Marchin says he felt discriminated against for being a Puerto Rican born citizen, a commonwealth of the United States. Hertz has since responded via direct message to Marchin, detailing an apology, a refund, also releasing an official statement, okay? Hertz said that the company accepts Puerto Rican drivers licenses from customers renting in the United States without requiring a valid passport. Quoting, we sincerely regret that our policy was not followed and have apologized to Mr. Marchand and refunded his rental. A company spokesperson said, <laughs> we are reinforcing our policies with employees to ensure that they are understood and followed consistently across our locations. Kenner, country police chief also responded to the incident on behalf of the department regarding the officer's conduct. Chief Conley said on the incident that quote, the Kenner police department does not feel the officer represented the department well in this incident and commit to a full investigation into the officer's conduct to take necessary corrective actions. The investigation is ongoing. This incident occurred not long after Hertz's last scandal. Do you remember that December last year? For years, the rental car company Hertz falsely accused hundreds of innocent customers of stealing its vehicles. Accusations that for some resulted in arrests, felony charges, jail time. The company will pay $168 million to settle those claims. Hertz announced Monday in total covering 364 people falsely accused of car that. Dr. Metzl, anybody can be wrong, even about things that perhaps other people would say is obvious. But it's that they were so vigorous and rude, the officer, in their denials to this customer. So ignorant, okay, but so forceful and so rude. Don't just give him a refund. I mean, give this guy a new Thank car. You. you know, <laughs> this guy yeah. deserves a car for. And don't report it stolen. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, you could just feel the frustration. This was gaslighting to the nth degree. This guy was tried to make to feel like he was 
the crazy one. Um, people heard his accent. Uh, they heard what he sounded like and they immediately jumped to a series of conclusions. His calm demeanor in this video was I thought remarkable. Like it was actually remarkable. Like who wouldn't yeah. just start yelling and throwing things. Uh, and, and it was just so frustrating to hear him calmly try to explain a fact. And that fact being that Puerto Rico is part of the US. Um, and as being part of the US, you know, you pay taxes and you supposedly get certain kind of benefits like being treated to um, rights and privileges and having the government help pay when you get hit with natural disasters and not having the president come and just mm. throw paper towels at you yeah, and things like that. And so it's not like we have upheld our end of the bargain all that well. Um, and so this guy, he was remarkable actually. I thought it was pretty remarkable, but it does suggest this much bigger common misperception, just not only about what the US is, education about what the US is, but also mm. the, I think the assumptions people jump to when they hear somebody speaking with an accent. It's probably just me doctor, but those assumptions seem a lot louder. They seem a lot louder in these times. And it broke my heart when he mentioned going to meet his son because I instantly had a vision of what if a family member was right next to him? What if a son was right next to him? The humiliation degrading of this human being who'd done nothing wrong, it was too much. We'll move on to this one now. She earned praise, we loved her when she was thrust onto the national stage. The Florida school though is banning a poem read at the Biden inauguration. After the objection of just one parent, the poem that Amanda Gorman, remember her? Recited at President Joe Biden's inauguration has been banned from elementary schools across Miami-Dade County, Florida. The poem was beautiful, remember? Miami Herald reporting that the poem, which is titled The Hills We Climb, was removed from the K through 5 curriculum in the county after a local parent, Daly Salinas, challenged it as inappropriate for students. In addition to Corman's poem, Salinas also challenged four other books, the ABCs of Black History, Cuban Kids, Countries in the News, Cuba, and Love to Langston. For what she claimed were filled with indirect hate messages inspired by critical race theory. Salinas tells the Miami Herald that she's not in favor of censorship, <clears throat> but she instead wants students to know the truth about Cuba with accurate reading materials. That said, she also complained that the district had left the books she objected to available for middle school students. As she claimed they were inappropriate for all ages. Director of Research and Insight at Florida Freedom to Read Project, Stefania Farrell, said that the nature of the books being challenged in the country shows that there's a concerted effort to target books that address ethnicities, marginalized communities, racism, or our history of racism. It seems to me, Dr. Messel, that people don't even understand critical race theory. It's just the cool thing to throw out there. And they don't understand what is perhaps and is not hate directly or indirectly. 
I mean, in this case, let's be honest, it's not just about the poem, it's about the poet, right? How dare mm-hmm. a young black woman speak this way in such a national forum for what is an incredibly aspirational poem, right? This was an inauguration poem that was a call to human betterment. And so this is really just terrifying on so many levels. First, of course, is just the power that these small small number of people have. I mean, there was a story in the, I think, Post or Times the other day that only 12 or 13 people in Florida are, are behind most of the requests for the book bans. And so when you kind of try to ban something that fits the ideology about like, let's not learn about history or anything critical or aspirational or unifying, it gets a lot of play. And so the fact that one parent is gonna do this and that we're even talking about it, I find really, really upsetting because where does that lead us, right? It's not just gonna be school libraries, it's gonna be movies and television shows and newspapers, right? This is a really slippery slope. If if these kind of dominant messages get so much airtime, it really leads us down a place that, um, that, that is so antithetical to the version of the United States that many people assume and have, have grown up with. And then the flip side, of course, is that as a liberal person, I am not a, not in any way in favor of any bans. I don't think there should be any bans on any books. We should have everything out there and, and debate it. But what about when a black parent says, well, I don't want this poem by a white poet, by a white poet, or this is too conservative for me, or it's hateful, or something like that. Are they going to then ban that? I, I really doubt it. And so, again, the things that are being banned are are supporting a particular ideology, which is an incredibly problematic and slippery slope for our country. Yeah, and I want to seize upon what you were talking about when you, when you mentioned, and we're almost out of time for this segment about so few being able to inflict so much really because and perhaps this is not something that you can relate the two different subjects but to me it's it's the same as this whole gun debate because you have most Americans if we believe the polling saying we want reasonable things done here but you have a powerful few or fewer much fewer saying nope nothing to see and we're not going to do anything yeah, it's really the definition of minority rule. I mean, I think that, again, these numbers on who's calling for book bans and the result of it, these voices are being used in, 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 in the service of an ideology. And I do think there is something similar. I think we'll talk about it in the next segment here about, yeah. about the gun debate. It's a good segue. Uh, we'll take a quick break. And when we return with Dr. Metzl, our great co-host today on Indisputable, we'll get into that. Welcome back to Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie, who has the day off. Let's get you some quick comments here. TYT member Lynn has this to say about that Hertz worker and the cop who really dismissed very disgustingly the customer saying Puerto Rico is not a part of the US, refusing service without a passport and knew they were right. They weren't. Lynn says, I hate that the cop keeps talking about Hertz's policy, ignoring the fact that the policy doesn't apply because Puerto Rico is a part of the US. Say it again, louder Lynn for the people in the back. Cuban Cowboy says they need, echoing what Dr. Metzl said, they need to not only refund him, but also pay for damages. This is ridiculous, couldn't agree more. YouTube, 
Blackfist86 says, so now Puerto Rico ain't part of the states, but when it's vacation time, they are shaking my head. This next one, um, I can't wait for Dr. Metzl to weigh in. Cops heard after six hour handguns fire on their own. Here's what's going on, the six hour P320 semi-automatic handgun is one of America's most popular firearms. But according to one law enforcement source, the P320 isn't just a gun, it's a ticking time bomb. It allegedly fires spontaneously and has injured dozens of cops. According to the lawsuits brought against gun manufacturer Sig Sauer, 150 people claim to have suffered injuries or frightening near misses when their department issued P320 went off on its own. Six hour P320 semi-automatic handgun is used by some 1000 law enforcement agencies from the local to the federal level, as well as being a popular civilian purchase. But its manufacturer is facing a slew of lawsuits alleging it can fire even when holstered, even when the trigger isn't pulled, and even when it is just sitting at rest, lawyers allege. And one of the attorneys handling the many cases calls the P320 America's most dangerously defective gun. In the lawsuits, the cases center on the P320 not having an external manual safety, known as a tab trigger. Attorneys bringing the cases say it is a crucial design flaw that makes the gun liable to fire spontaneously with disastrous consequences. They say that although nobody has been killed, many have been injured. Among those injured include a detective, Ashley Katetau, single mother to a young son, police officer in the Somerville, Massachusetts Police Department. The 12 year veteran was beginning a typical 4 p.m. to midnight shift. And as she walked over from her car to her police cruiser, she was shot in the upper thigh. Sergeant Michael Colwell of the Troy Police Department was an award winner at the Academy. Promoted to Sergeant in 2015, prior to June 2nd, 2021, he had never shot anyone or been shot at until his own gun that he had holstered and tucked away went off during range practice. The incident cost him nearly two years of policing. He says, I haven't been able to do any kind of rigorous activity. Attorney Robert Zimmerman, who is bringing dozens of cases against Sig Sauer, says something has to be done immediately before more people are injured or worse. He told the Post, we're calling on Sig to recall this weapon and redesign it to make it safe. Adding the issue is that Sig Sauer has advertised this gun as a gun that won't fire unless the user wants it to fire. And none of my clients wanted this gun to fire. He continues, we have clients who have had their weapons in their holster without their hands on the holster and it fired. We've had individuals who have had their guns in their holster and touched the back of the gun either to retrieve the weapon or to put it back in the holster and it fired. Zimmerman said the P320 is unique in that Six Hour is the only manufacturer making this type of gun without an external manual safety. This doctor sounds like a disaster already. And if this attorney's to be believed these cases, so many of them, there is so much more danger to come 
And there seems little chance that this gun manufacturer is going to recall this weapon or be forced to do so. I'm glad this is getting attention. It's a story I've been hearing for a while. A lot of people own this handgun. It's as used by cops, people own them privately. There's no good scenario for what's an accidental shooting. But I think there are a couple of things that are particularly important about this case that I think are important to highlight. First of all, we have the technology to make handguns a lot safer. We don't use it. You could make smart guns that identify people's palm print. Obviously, um, safety locks, trigger locks are um, just a basic 101 kind of thing. And so the fact that that's, that's not on this gun is really, really concerning and we're seeing the, the effects of it. Um, this is a case where gun manufacturers are liable because it's a malfunctioning product. But we also have to recognize that this is in the context of basically congressional level protection for gun manufacturers. It's very hard to sue gun manufacturers. So the incentive to bring a class action suit or bring suit the way you would against the maker of any other product, um, cigarettes or um, you know cars without uh, airbags, stuff like that. It just doesn't work here because of the protections that gun manufacturers um, enjoy. And so again, not exactly relevant in this case, but I think it highlights the importance of, of lawsuits. We've had a class action lawsuit against a gun manufacturer for advertising last year. But this again is just shows the ridiculousness of shielding this whole industry from, from liability. And then I guess the third part is just, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about mass shootings, um, but there are many other kinds of gun death in this country and gun injury. Um, and, and accidental shootings, usually we think it's like a kid picks up a gun, but also the gun can just go off on its own or when somebody drops it in you know, in the grocery store or something like that. So accidental shootings are a real problem and often it's kids that get shot. And so we need to also focus a lot more on, on accidental shootings as a category, even though it doesn't get the headlines that mass shootings do. Yeah, and we wanted to do this story, doctor, because you know there's been some reporting, but You've been hearing about it, but you're in this arena, so to speak. I've not heard much about it. And that's what makes it even scarier, okay? That this is this, this quiet thing out there because not just law enforcement agencies, a thousand I think are reporting said are using this service weapon, but others is popular with so many customers. We'll keep following, we'll keep following the story. We'll move on to this one. Little ducklings, cute, innocent, and don't you want to protect them when they're crossing the road? A father was doing just that, helping the ducklings cross the road when he was killed by a teen driver. This is horrific. Teen driver struck and killed Casey Rivara, 41 years old, father of two. Happened in California last week. This father had pulled over to help a brood of ducklings cross the street at a busy intersection. Rivara was driving his children home from swim practice and had parked his car at the side of the road to usher the mother duck and her family of ducklings across an intersection in Rockland, California. He was hit and killed by a 17 year old female driver as his helpless children aged 11 and six 
watched from the car actual screenshot there. A Placer County Sheriff's Office spokesperson telling NBC News the unarmed driver was cooperating and that it was unlikely she'd be charged over the death. Stefano Formica, a lawyer for Bond Legal, telling the legal advocate that Casey's family may be entitled to a wrongful death claim. It is almost always a driver's duty to yield to any pedestrian, she explained. This is heartbreaking. In a statement, his widow Angel Chow said, we have been deeply touched by the overwhelming love and support we've received for Casey Rivera and our family in these past few days. We want to express our heartfelt gratitude to all of you for the kind messages and gestures of kindness. It's truly humbling to hear how Casey has positively impacted your lives. And we're extremely grateful for that, the family. GoFundMe, so far, it has raised more than 120,000 in donations. It's heartbreaking to see these pictures. It is just heartbreaking. This is a final act of, of kindness, Dr. Metzel. And for so many of us, when doing such a great thing ends so tragically, the first question people want to ask is, why? Really? It's a tough one. I mean, this is so heartbreaking just because here's somebody trying to do something nice, something human. And so the story itself is just so sad and so random, it's hard to get your mind around. But then the, also, I just keep thinking like, <laughs> in the context of our moment, even our nice stories are bummer stories, even our kindness stories lead to some kind of violence. Like I I don't wanna be here talking about gun death. I'd rather be talking about like puppies and ducks and spring sure. and other stuff. So even our, nice, even our nice stories have this ending. And so it's just, it's just, it's horrible in, in so many ways. But when I saw this come across, I just really, my heart really broke. Yeah, and, and God bless this family and um, the GoFundMe that continues to grow. Money can't bring dad back, but we hope the family gets some healing, some measure of hope and their grief is, is remedied in some way. It's just such a tough one. Tyrese Gibson, talented actor, incredible singer on the A-list. And let's hope he has A-list money. He Indicates he does because the superstar has been ordered to pay $636,000, so much of it in child support. Here's what's going on inside a Georgia courtroom. Last month, the singer, Fast and Furious actor Tyrese Gibson was ordered to pay nearly $650,000 as a result of a tumultuous court battle with his ex-wife. An Atlanta judge ruled. The voluntary child support payment, voluntary, of $2,236 the star had been making to his ex, Samantha Lee, for some two years simply wasn't enough for their three-year-old daughter. Judge Kevin Farmer increased the support order 
to $10,690 in line with another child support order out of California, which covered the actor's older daughter. He ordered the Fast and Furious star to pay that increased amount retroactively plus interest, totaling more than $230,000. Judge Farmer also ordered Gibson must cover $399,000 of Samantha Lee Gibson's legal fees. And it's the legal fees that have been a huge contention for the superstar. As the couple's prenup indicates, they would each be responsible for their own legal bills. Show you video of Tyrese inside the courtroom last month. And we also were hoping to accomplish sharing, shedding light on Samantha. Gibson making well over a hundred thousand a year outside of what I make per year, and the necessary needs of the actual child are beyond met. Oh, I understand. And you're aware that if you pay these amounts and then the Court of Appeals reverses it, you don't get your money back. I am well aware of it. Okay. Do you want the court to consider um, you paying it into a, a, a bond so that? In the event, whatever the court rules, no one, no one is prejudiced. I, I would, I would want to know more about what this means as far as a bond. But if I could position myself to show any intentionality to to do that, if that's the final, final outcome, then I'll take care. But doing something that is beyond the scope of the law. It feels like punishment. It feels like it's it's just unnecessary. And if the roles were reversed, I just really feel like I wouldn't be sitting here. Superstar actor on the A-list with the number one movie out right now, Fast and Furious. Tyrese Gibson says this is unfair. Per previous ruling, the sweet lady singer bulked at the $10,000 plus monthly amount in child support. He argued the $2,000 plus amount was in line with the Georgia child support calculator, telling the judge that his ex-wife makes good money on her own and that anything more was an excessive amount. Yesterday, in front of the same judge, Gibson's attorney, Tanya Mitchell Graham, detailed the errors in the previous ruling. Graham is no stranger to celebrity clients. She scored wins for superstars Ludacris, Usher, others. But Judge Farmer held firm, his previous decision stands. Attorney Graham says they plan to appeal as soon as the judge's order has been submitted. They've already filed a motion for a new trial. Gibson, some say, isn't helping his cause by speaking freely on social media. He's been vocal about this judge, the proceedings. His complaints include that the judge is racist and that the judge referred to his ex-wife as a bitch in chambers. The star also posted screenshots of a separate message he says he received from an anonymous person who claimed similar behavior by this judge. Gibson also said that he and his lawyers tried to get a new judge citing abuse of power and that supporters of his were turned away from standing outside the courtroom and praying with him. The stay singer also expressed his displeasure that limited press were allowed inside the courtroom while the proceedings were taking place and alleged 
the Fulton County judge had a history of ruling against fathers. There are legal issues here that seem clear, the prenup doctor, the rest. But what about Tyrese Gibson, superstar from humble beginnings who says this judge is racist and I'm not getting a fair shake as a black man in this courtroom. I don't really know the inner workings of the case. Gibson, one of my heroes for many people. But I think it's important to step back and say, why do we have these kind of laws and rulings in the first place? It's because we've got a very long history in this country and elsewhere of fathers, breadwinners having children and then skipping out, denying. And so we have these kind of laws, particularly for these kind of cases, right? That that it, that they kind of take all the proceeds into account, and they say, what's the responsibility of, of having a child, and and what does that entail? And then there's also a history of men saying they're being victimized. Of you know this kind of idea of anti-male behavior. We're having a big debate right now in this country about what does it mean to be a man. Uh, Josh Hawley, of all people has a book out about masculinity and traditional mm. values that that suggests the kind of paternal <laughs> the paternalism that we want to come back and so i think there's a bigger context in in the world right now um and and i i honestly just personally don't think we should be super sympathetic to men who claim that they're they're the victim and i i i don't know this case but i would just say there's a it's kind of until proven otherwise, there's a long history of men basically shirking their responsibilities in these cases. But I do think as we basically ban abortion in this country, block access to reproductive choice, mm. um, you know, limit, um, now they're saying even possibly the birth control pill, having a national conversation about what it means to be a father is something that we're gonna be having a lot of. And so yeah. I think this case is, is timely in, in ways that I think are probably unexpected. No, he wants to talk more about it, Dr. Metzl. Tyrese Gibson is someone who, even the mother, I believe has said, um, is very involved with his children um, voluntarily paying that lesser amount, but with Father's Day coming up, I think you're right. It is time for a national, perhaps a global conversation on what it means to be a father and all the feeder issues that stem from that in court or otherwise. Thank you, Dr. Jonathan Metzl. Real quick, the name of the book again. Is Dying of Whiteness. Um, you can find it at dyingofwhiteness.com and I'm on Twitter all the time. And again, a new book coming out in January, which I'll come back and talk more about later on. So thanks so much. Looking forward to it, doctor. Thank you so much. I am Sharon Radin for Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and this is Indisputable.